Welcome back to Untap Up, Keep Drink, where today we are talking about budgeting. Really what this episode is hopefully designed to do is to give you practical budgeting tips while we're all stuck at home, whether it be from coronavirus or other reasons. Before we get into that, I do have some rules updates that I want to mention real quick. Then we'll get into general budgeting tips for paper and digital, and then try and get into some more COVID-specific tips. And this course is going to be focused more on the digital environments, and I'm going to try and give some examples throughout. So bear with me on this one. And of course, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. YouTube is a bit behind. I am working on that. Having taken over everything here, it's kind of slow to learn everything at the same time. So YouTube, got a couple videos that I'm currently working on that will go up as soon as I can get them. But I didn't want to continue to make the audio content because it seems that is where the largest base is at. And so I'm trying to make sure that that side of things is still going to be fairly consistent. With that being said, there is that survey. I'm going to leave it up for just a little bit longer. So check that out if you can. It's in the description there. So anyone who fills that out, thank you very much. I'm reading through all of your replies and all of your feedback. It's been kind of a big help to stay motivated knowing that that feedback is there. So I'm going to try something new this episode. It may just be a one-off from something that I continue to do going forward, but I'm going to have two different beers this time, and I'm going to compare them. I'm going to have one at the beginning of the episode and drink that one through the first half or so, and then I'm going to open up the second one, and I'm going to have the taste on that one and compare and contrast what's going on there. And then at the end, I'll kind of rank the two of them against each other and see which one I prefer and just give my honest opinion on them. So first up, we've got the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company's Hazy Little Thing IPA. 6.7% ABV, 35 IBUs. On the pour, it's just slightly hazy, golden, beautiful color. Definitely going to be a nice hop forward, dry hop beer. The smell is lightly tropical. Um, not really too heavy on the hops, like the, the bitter side of the hops or the resinous kind. It's just kind of lightly fruity, hoppy. Ooh, that's nice and smooth. It's a luscious texture, kind of creamy, smooth. And the taste kind of follows the same same notes as the aroma. Lightly hoppy, but we have more of a, a malt flavor here as well. Nice way to, to balance it out. It's just like a really subtle sweetness to it that really helps to carry it into the aftertaste. And the aftertaste just is a pretty dry hop finish, more of that kind of resinous, piney flavor than it is that tropical, fruity, aromatic flavors. We'll see how the flavors develop on this one as I go through the rest of this episode, and we'll see how it compares to the next one we've got, which is the Squatters Hop Rising Tropical Double IPA. So there's like three different versions of this beer, but this is the tropical one, and I figured I'd go for this one because it was a nice comparison to what I would normally expect out of a hazy, which is a bit stronger in flavor, um, and obviously that double means it's going to be a bit more alcoholic. It's 9% ABV and 72 IBUs, as again, you'd expect with a double IPA. And I'll get to the tasting notes on that one later in the show. And of course, I do want to remind everybody, be safe, be responsible. If you're drinking along with me, that's great, but make sure that you're not drinking driving, not drinking underage, be responsible, be safe. All right, so let's get on with it. Before I get into the general tips and tricks of playing magic and buying magic on a budget, there were some rules updates that I wanted to cover real quick. First one is the companion rule. So this is on June 1st with their BNR update. And this was actually pointed out to me by a listener. I completely skipped over this one. So thank you for that. So the new rule for companion is once per game, anytime you could cast a sorcery, which they specify here is during your main phase when the stack's empty, you can pay three generic mana to put your companion from your sideboard into your hand. This is a special action, not an activated ability. So this is a very powerful rules change. Having it be a special action means that it doesn't use the stack and therefore can't be countered by spells or abilities. That all is great, but again, that's going to add limitations to how you can use your companion, because you can no longer just cast it from your sideboard. But having it in your hand is also very powerful. What that means is that it potentially allows you to cheat costs for whatever reason, whether it be the amount of mana you pay, 
or just actually putting it straight onto the battlefield from your hand. You gain triggers from things that care about casting it from your hand, more specific grouping of cards that care about that, but those that do, that then matters. Lastly, and I think this is kind of the biggest and most important one here, it allows for more counterplay, potentially having it influenced while it's in your hand from things like hand attack or other discard effects, anything like that. Once it's in your hand, it exists as a normal card. There's just a lot more counterplay that people can do based around that fact, rather than having to only be able to counter it or have to deal with it once it's already on the battlefield. They gave us a why for this, which is something I'm always, always after. What they said was that the metagame was shaping up around companions. And what they meant by that is that the win rate around decks that have companions in it was way too high across most formats all over the place. We saw that they were doing some bans and restrictions before, and I covered that a couple episodes ago, but they're trying to do this to circumnavigate having to ban specific companions. Instead, what they want to do is just have a wide rule change that affects everything. But it'll be interesting to see if this then changes some of the previous bans that they did. I don't expect it will, because the ones that were banned were banned for very specific reasons. We'll see, though. Of course, all of this means that it allows for more interaction like talked about, and this is the one that they're always after, wider deck variety. Once a meta starts to get solved, everyone just plays those decks. That means that everyone's playing specific cards, and that's kind of boring both to watch in like the pro scene and stuff like that, but also just to play and to play against. Hopefully this helps to shake things up enough, so hopefully we're not just seeing the same types of decks over and over again. So additionally, the ban restricted update also contained bans for standard and historic. Easily enough, they were the same cards. So that's great and easy to cover. Agent of Treachery and Fires of Invention. Again, they've got the why here. This one I'm actually going to read the reasoning just because it's nice to have what they say, kind of like the, the general interpretation of it. So for Fires of Invention, they said that over the course of the last several weeks, Fires of Invention decks have risen to have a dominant win rate and metagame presence in standard, achieving a 55% win rate and having even or favorable matchups against each of the other top 10 archetypes. This indicates that the metagame forces alone aren't sufficient to keep the deck in check. In addition, as we craft and test future environments, we found Fires of Invention to be a significant design and balance constraint. Because of the flexible nature and cost reduction effect, Fires of Invention decks would continue to gain power as new high mana cost spells are added to the environment. What, is, what does that mean, right? Just the, the layman's translation is just that normally other sets help to balance out cards like this in standard. But because of the ludicrous cost to play it, that being that it's four mana, single pip cost. Realistically, it's just a very easy card to play. But it also has the ability just to snowball quickly for virtually no additional cost. And it just would have continued to remain dominant as future sets came out. So there wouldn't be that corrective effect that normally is there. The other card was Agent of Treachery. This is what they had to say on that one. Recently, we've seen a rise in archetypes that use either Lucka Coppercoat Outcast, that's the new Planeswalker, or Winota Joiner of Forces. That was the card that we covered a couple weeks ago that got banned in Brawl. It's kind of a similar mindset here. So we've seen a rise in archetypes that use either of those cards to put Agent of Treachery directly into play. Well, part of the design intent of these cards was to provide creative ways to deploy powerful high mana cost creatures. We've observed that using them to play an early agent of treachery can be uniquely frustrating to play against and difficult to come back from. Both of these cards that cheat out agent have a fairly low cost of getting agent out. And what I mean by that is that you don't need any blue mana to do so. So it doesn't really impact your ability to play these other cards on curve because you're not building your mana base around having agent of treachery in your deck. It's just a thing that you have. Again, Winota is a four drop. Luka is a five drop. Monocolor versus playing Boros. But again, the ability to cheat out a seven drop on turn four and then having that thing that you've cheated out that seven drop also be able to steal something from your opponent including lands right so imagine that on turn four where you're stealing your opponent's land you're essentially ramping yourself which you're not really going to need but it's going to be awesome to have or you're just shutting down a critical piece of their early game plan and basically the impetus behind this banning is that it's unfun to play against the warping metagame that this could have would make for such a miserable standard environment i think that they are just being proactive on this one to make sure that even though the win rate on it right now is like okay it's a little high that they're just getting ahead of it and making 
making sure that this isn't something that becomes warping in the future. All right, last on the rules updates to cover, we've got one for Commander. On the Command Fest online stream on June 6th, the Commander's Rules Committee announced that they were changing the format's rules to allow dies and exile triggers for Commanders to work, quote, the way you think they should. Dies and exile triggers for Commanders has always been an exceedingly frustrating thing to deal with. So currently, when a commander dies, players are given a choice. Let the commander die to trigger when this creature dies or when another creature dies abilities to work. Think just aristocrats, sacrifice, that sort of thing. But doing so puts the commander in the graveyard, which is what actually shows the game state that that creature had died. That makes it very, very difficult to use your commander again. You need a reanimate or regrowth type effect to get your commander back. And if your graveyard gets exiled, that's one of the only ways to actually bring your commander back to the command zone because as a zone change happens, you would then be able to say, okay, I don't want this to go to exile. I want to go to my command zone. But you wouldn't be able to do that just from the graveyard on its own. The other choice is to choose to put it into the command zone where it won't be seen as having died and therefore it won't cause the dying triggers to go off, whether it's own or anything else. So one of the biggest frustrations and the best examples of this is having Elenda the Duskrose as your commander. She has an effect that when she dies, you put X11 white vampire creature tokens likely onto the battlefield where X is her power. So with the current rule set, when Elenda dies, you have to choose. Either she goes to the graveyard, which means that she's going to be difficult to get back, but allows her, her death trigger to work, or you put her back in the command zone and you don't get those tokens. So if she's in your graveyard, like I said, difficult to get repeated value off of her, which Elenda is a commander that wants to get repeated value off of. It was a wonderful commander that you wanted to have in your 99, which really, really sucked. And overall, outside of Alenda, it meant that any commander that has a dying trigger or you want to die for one reason or another based around your, your deck building, it was just a significantly worse option than one without those dying triggers or that you don't care about dying. And it just made deck building much more difficult and playing around those commanders much less fun. So this update will happen with the Corset set 2021 rules update, and it will change the rule to be written as if a commander is in a graveyard or an exile, and that card was put into that zone since the last time state-based actions were checked, its owner may put it into the command zone. What that means is that if you sacrifice or have your commander killed or exiled, that they will be allowed to move into the new zone as appropriate, whether it be exile, graveyard, whatever. And then once state-based actions are checked and see that your commander is in the new zone, you may then choose to put it into the command zone. But you don't have to. If your strategy's already been revolving around your commander going to the graveyard, you can still just play that as normal. But this allows for those dying and leaves the battlefield type abilities to trigger and for you to be able to recast it from the command zone as you would normally expect expect on something like this. It kind of adds the beginner-friendly aspect of Commander into how Commanders die and get exiled and things like that. So that's really nice. I'm a big fan of the change because these sorts of effects were always frustrating and the rules that you have to learn and figure out around them was super, super frustrating, but kind of simplifies all that, which is always going to be a good thing. All right, all of the rules stuff aside, new changes and whatnot, time to get into the budgeting side of things. First, I just want to give a quick disclaimer. I am not an MTG finance guy. I'm not going to pretend that I can predict card prices or the impact on any given event will have on them nor would I be able to tell you when to buy or sell cards with absolute certainty. That's not my bag. I can tell you what I do, but I ask that you look at my practices objectively and with a level of scrutiny that you are comfortable with. Compare what I say and what I suggest to the card market as a whole, then make your own educated decision. We're being educated here, right? Get as much information as you can and as much as you want before making the decisions on buying cards. This episode is not specifically about buying cards so much as it is about general strategies to help save money whenever possible. I just kind of want to throw that out there that what I say is not some rule of law. It's just like my suggestions, what I've done and what I've seen that works. All right, let's get into it. So first strategy is to make a literal budget. So this one is going to be for all formats and all players. Anyone can learn this methodology. So making a literal budget seems obvious when it comes to budgeting, but it's surprisingly difficult. I see loads and loads of magic content creators talk about budget X in magic, right? Whether it's budget deck, budget building in general, but I don't know if I've ever actually heard someone talk about 
and detailing out the cost of the deck and the budget and what you need to do to to have a budget. People talk about budget builds, budget decks, budget whatever, but they don't actually talk about doing the budgeting and like breaking down the deck based on the cost of the cards and working within a budget. Everyone just wants to tell you about a specific build, but no one wants to help you actually go through the budgeting process. They just give you the results of it. I want you to think, how much is what you're buying actually worth to you? You are the critical piece here, right? Even if you have a budget, what does that mean? Even if you have a budget, are you actually getting your money's worth? So the reason why I want you to think about how much you're buying is actually worth to you is because different people look at things differently. Is $10 worth of basic lands the same as a $10 alternate art path to exile? Financially, $10 is $10. So yes, but realistically to you, is it? So I grabbed a couple definitions for budget just to kind of frame things around the way that I, I structured this episode. So we've got budget as a noun, an estimate of income and expenditure for a set period of time. The last part being, you know, the expenditure. We have budget as a verb, allow or provide a particular amount of money in a budget, kind of cyclical definition there. We've got budget as an adjective, as inexpensive, which is what you usually find people talking about. And of course, it wouldn't be fun and more complicated if I didn't say that we want to make a budget deck. So we have a budget of X dollars that we are using to help us budget out our cards before we buy them. So those are the three definitions of budget all being used in the same sentence. To simplify that, we want to make an inexpensive deck so that we've set aside a certain amount of money that we're going to use to help us plan out how much we can actually spend on each card. That's the focus of this episode. Here's another idea. Split your budget up into some for your needs and some for your wants. The example, of course, is just that you need some cards to make a new deck, right? That new deck isn't just going to spring up out of out of nowhere, but you want new cards, better cards, more expensive cards to help upgrade an older deck. So maybe you say it's like 90% for needs, 10% for wants of your budget, right? That 10% of your wants should still be prioritized on the needs that you have until the needs are filled. And then that 10% can go to the wants that you have. So that 10% that I'm talking about here is just what you're willing to spend on wants, right? Not what you're going to spend on, just what you're like allowing yourself in your budget to spend on the kind of extra, more superfluous, unnecessary cards. So if you've gone through and listed out the cost for your needs and you still have some left over, then you can use that on the one. But the reason why I'm talking about this as strict numbers is because I want you to stick to your 10%, right? Anything extra, save the rest for your next budgeting opportunity. Just because you have extra money from your budget doesn't mean that you need to spend it. And that's just a life lesson that I think people often ignore. Because if you have that extra money and you've budgeted it to be used, then why not use it? You might as well use it, right? But budgeting is is more than just allocating funds. It's about using those funds intelligently. All right, time for an example. And this one's gonna be focused on Commander. The reason being is just that it's the easiest one to break down at cost value for me. And that's just because there's 100 cards. So let's say you have a budget of $100 to buy cards. Again, we have to ask ourselves, what does this $100 in cards mean to you? $100 used to buy a mana crit, just one mana crit. Now it doesn't even buy that. However, for me, $100 is usually my budget if I'm building an entirely new deck. So that's new, new, not upgrading at all. This is $100 for a entirely new commander deck. And the reason why I choose that amount is because I'm lazy and that averages out to $1 per card. And I can stick to that and I know that I'm getting what I am personally willing to put into it. So here's just like a general budgeting tip for life. Save X dollars a week, a month, a paycheck, whatever your time frame is for your hobbies, right? In this case, for magic, right? So for me, usually I try and like have a, a new deck or new additions to my decks every month. Try and like spice it up so that way when I play with friends, every week, every couple of weeks, whatever happens to be, there's differentiation between what I was 
was playing and what I am playing. And so let's just say for my salary, $100 a month. So that's $25 a week. And I just set that aside and that is my magic budget. Now that's not realistic, but it gives us nice numbers to work with. So with that, let's keep with the idea of a $100 commander deck for now. Let's also say that we're building it entirely from scratch. No cards used from our collection, no cards that have been given to us by friends, family, whatever. These are just entirely new that you are buying for this deck specifically. So with commander, we have specific needs. One is our commander. Two is our land. Every deck's got to have land. Three, the theme cards that we want in the deck. We need at least 30 to 35 on theme cards for your deck to function properly, for it to be fun and for you to be actively working towards a strategy the entire time. And number four is just the format essentials. Ramp, card drop, removal, and board. So those are kind of the four pillars that you're using as you're building your commander deck. We've got our needs. Let's look at our wants. Number one is specific cards. Those are the cards that you want, but you don't need. And what I mean by that is that you can find substitutes or they just don't help the deck, right? They're not part of the essentials that I talked about. Number two is our power level. More powerful cards usually have a higher asking price. And number three is just blinging it out. Foils, alternate arts, etc. Realistically, if you're looking at the four needs and comparing it to the three wants here, it's obvious where the priority needs to be to make a functional deck. So let's budget to our needs. Need number one, your commander. Unfortunately, commanders usually put the rest of the deck at kind of a, an uneven deficit. But don't worry, we can make that up. Commanders, legendary creatures, they're really cool, right? But they're usually rares and mythics. And usually those, again, are going to be more powerful and just have a higher asking price. And that's because they're going to be used in multiple formats, not just in commander. So just for example here, I'm just going to say we're going to budget $5 even. That means our remaining budget is at $95. So need number two is our lands. Depending on your deck and commander, you'll want between 33 and 40 lands. Sometimes more, rarely less. Let's say for our build here that we're in three colors and we are just absolute god tier predicting these things. Uh, so we predict our curve is going to be like three and a half, three, seven converted mana cost. So we're going to use 36 land. So remember, we're trying to budget, we're trying to cut costs. And with that, we know that basics are great, cheap, and they come in on tap, which is huge. However, they're not always the most reliable to get the colors when you need it. So you're probably thinking like, what about duels? Well, budget, we're not getting classic duels, right? What about just multicolored lands? Tap lands are cheap, but they come at the cost of coming in tapped. However, they can be traded out eventually for more efficient lands, eventually not even being like far away in the future. Could be just later if we have the extra cash for it in our budget. So for now, let's just say that with our budget, we're doing 27 basics at like 10 cents each. You can probably get them for cheaper. I would be amazed if you have to spend that much on them. And we're doing nine tap lands, kind of three of each color pair there. And say those cost 25 cents. So our lands right now cost 4.95. You can probably do better, but it's a good benchmark to set to help us fund the rest of the deck, right? To work within our budget to get the remaining 63 cards, right? Because with our commander and these cards, we're at 27. So that puts our remaining budget to $90.05. So I'm going to skip number three, the theme for the theme for a minute and focus on number four, which is the format essential. So you need about eight to 10 for both ramp and card draw. And you need about four to five for both removal and board work. So for now, we're going to play it safe. And we're going to do the maximum of each of those categories. So that's 30 cards of our remaining 63 cards. And when you're looking at format essentials like this, format staples usually hold their price pretty well. So you may not be getting away for the $1 card that we're kind of working around. Um, so I made a quick list of ramp cards um, at the card kingdom cost. Soul Ring, $4. Is it Signet? $1. Boro Signet, 59 cents. Azoria Signet, $2. Jeskai Banner, 25 cents. Commander Sphere, $1. C Curious Homunculus, a dollar. Goblin Electromancer, 25 cents. Darksteel Ingot, a dollar. Talisman of Conviction, a dollar 29. Together, that's $12.38 for just those cards, right? That's just our ramp. And let's say that we average about $8 each for card draw, removal, and board wipe. 
And that's not actually a number that I pulled out of thin air. Uh, I was looking, I was trying to look at realistic costs on certain things, and you definitely are going to be able to do better than that. But for getting like classic staples, that was about right for the deck that we're that we're working with, and I'll explain that in a second as well. Um, so with those costs, that's thirty six dollars and thirty eight cents, which means that our remaining budget is fifty three dollars and sixty seven cents, and thirty three cards remaining on our build. And so now we have a deck that allows us to get to later stages of the game that lets us interact with our opponent that lets us just interact with the board in general. So we've got a deck that is functional at this point. It's just a matter of adding the cards for our theme. So generally your theme's gonna be about 30 to 35 cards. We're gonna be lazy here and just say that we need 33 cards because that's the amount of slots that we have left. So considering everything from before, our deck or the meat of our deck is just 33 cards. And now we only have $53 left of our original budget to spend on what are the important cards of the deck, the cards that feel important to us rather. And that's only about $1.60 a card. It's not a lot of room for big splashy powerful cards. And just after initially writing this episode, I went back and just to help elaborate the example and the reason why the ramp cards that I have are the ones that I do is because I just chose a random theme on EDH rec and got prowess, which is dope. Love prowess. But I wanted to extend it into just kind of prow-ish. Um, and so prow-ish is just kind of like broken down into two types of cards. Spells, non-creature spells for prowess specifically, but instants and sorceries are the usual focus. And then creatures and permanents that benefit off of you playing those spells. So with that, you usually want more spells than creatures in order to get the trigger for the prowess or prowish more reliably and multiple times on each turn or each turn cycle if you're playing you know the instant game but most powers creatures are pretty cheap so that kind of allows us some wiggle room for having more powerful cards to trigger so luckily prowess or prowish allows most of our draw removal board wipes some of our ramp to be spells that work as part of our theme's suite of cards but that's not always so easy. So let's just assume that for most decks, the cards that actually are in the essentials do not play into your deck's main strategy. Obviously, you want to work that to the other direction, but just as a kind of safe budgeting build around, just assume that you need those because you need those for your deck to operate, and that's the cost of those cards, right? And then you have the other cards that are the things that make up your deck. So you can definitely get creative with your card search to help you find the overlap between those two. But the mentally, the best way I think to come up with a deck to build a deck is to focus on filling all of the sections before you devote too much time to making that overlap happen. Um, so the the deck building tip that I have is just when you fill out each section with the strictest adherence to the number you want, then when you're done with your initial list and you're starting to find other cards, replace them just one for one with the cards that you already have in the deck. So one of the hardest things to do is to cut down the list of cards, especially for the last like one to five cards. Those cards are especially difficult to cut. And so you you don't really, like, you kind of fall into the pitfall. It's just like, oh, well, this card's super, super good. I can't really cut that because it fits into this. Well, this card I need because of such and such. Don't let yourself fall into that pitfall, right? St- take a step back and compare cards objectively. Is this card want or need? Is it better than a card in your list? If so, replace that card. Take that other card out. This is your new 100. And then do you have the budget for it? And so that's kind of where we're, we're moving to next. One of the things that I think is frustrating when, when doing all of this is that you make a budget for a certain amount and then you make a deck list for that amount. And And if you're ordering online, then you have an issue of shipping. And everywhere, you're going to have an issue of tax. Don't forget about tax, shipping, and the other less obvious fees that are going to be associated with you getting your card. So that's kind of a quick general overview of going through a commander deck, understanding the wants and the needs, breaking down the cost for those, and kind of committing to that cost as you continue to build that deck, and then allowing yourself to change out cards as needed later on. This is something that can be applied to to basically every other format, but commander specifically is the one that I wanted to give an 
as an example, because $100, 100 cards, and it's a lot easier to kind of frame your mindset around them. But like I said, you can play this to almost every other format. Just determine a budget, find out what are you actually willing to spend. And more than that, what can you reasonably afford to spend? Then establish needs versus wants, actually go in and categorize them. And then with those, how much are you willing to spend on the wants? Everything else needs to be focused on the needs. And then always focus on the needs before you even start to worry about one. If you run into your budget for once, that's fine. You need to have certain cards, right? Then fill your list within the budget, focusing on the needs, like I said, and then replace cards. And then after you filled out your list, replace cards with stronger, more expensive cards, as long as your budget allows for it. So that's the, the general, just this is budgeting how to. So that was kind of the general, this is how to budget. Not this is a budget build that I made. Here's the result of it. Take this into practice, do it yourself, learn and see what works for you, what doesn't. This is, this is just like my general method. This is not a concrete thing that you have to follow. There's more to playing budget magic than just building a budget for a deck, right? There's ways to save money. The first one is to just stop buying pack and supplemental product. Paying for packs is kind of like gambling, realistically, when you think about it. Do you want to pay $350, $4 for a $50 or $80 card? Of course you do. Everyone would love to spend $4 for an $80 card, but do you want to pay $350, $4 for a dud card, for a pack of dud 10 cent cards? No, no one wants to spend that amount of money for that little return. So the reality is you don't get to pick which of the options you get, like an option one. And option two is just way, way more likely. There are so many more not good cards than there are excellent costly cards. That's just, that is unfortunately just the way of the world in magic. So the second thing is supplemental products. So just, just so everyone's on the same page on this one, any product that falls outside of like a fully released set, standard sets, master sets, commander sets, that's the supplemental products I'm talking about. So think dual decks, gift boxes, planeswalker decks, and so many more just random money grabbing products. Sadly, most of the cards in supplemental products are like they are in booster packs, just filler. So even if the card or cards in the product cost as much as the product as a whole, there's a hidden cost that most people don't realize, don't really think about, right? A lot of people are buying these supplemental products for a specific card. And even if the card or cards cost as much as the product, there's kind of a hidden cost that most people don't realize, right? What are you going to do with the extra cards in that product? Shops generally don't want them or need them for that matter. Trust me, they probably already have more of those filler cards than they can sell. This rule is hard to follow and it has the exceptions and some of them are kind of the few exceptions. The ones that you're buying packs, um, whether it be in a bundle, booster box, whatever, to draft. Uh, I am never going to, I'm never going to be the one to say, no, don't get packs to draft with. Draft is the best magic environment, in my opinion, for anyone and every. It's hard to learn at the beginning beginning, but it's opens to such a interesting and continually novel experience that I just think that it's exceptional. The second kind of exception or excuse to the rules are that you're buying the supplemental product play with as is, right? Maybe you love to play Watsi curated stuff. That's fine. Uh, maybe you don't have the budget or the know-how to go through and build a deck for yourself. That's fine. Maybe you need something that is just functional and fast to put together. Maybe you're late to an FNM or forgot to build something for Commander Knight. The, the products are there for that. The idea with these exceptions to this this general rule of not buying the superfluous, unneeded stuff when you're chasing singles is that you're buying an experience and that is what you're paying. It's not about getting the product itself necessarily and maybe having the product will be a bonus on top of it, but it's kind of like buying any other normal board game. You're buying it to play it as it is, get the experience from playing it as is, and that is what that is what you're putting your budget into. Um, the le- last exception is kind of a foggy area, uh, and that's that you're a collector. Every Magic player is a collector, right? Uh, Magic is a trading card game. It is a collectible card game, and it is a playable card game. So the last exception is kind of a foggy one, and that is that you're a collector. Basically, every single Magic player is a collector, uh, and that's the reason why I say it's kind of a foggy exception. Uh, Magic is, when you look at card games, 
You've got trading card games and collectible card games. Magic is both, but it is intended to be played. There are people who, of course, have ridiculous collections, and that's fine. If that's what they're chasing after, and they want to have those supplemental products, then by all means, let them have that. If they want to have, you know, a box that they hold on to of booster packs forever, by all means. That is the experience that they are looking at, and that is what I think separates that idea. Basically, the theme of this is just, if you're looking to buy any product for just one or two cards, just buy that card, just buy those cards. Don't spend the extra money on stuff that is just going to sit around and that you're not going to be able to do anything. All right, let's quickly just dive into this beer again. So this is so this is the Sierra Nevada Hazy Little Thing IPA. Smells opened up a bit more, a lot more tropical fruity, specifically uh, heavier on the mango. The body's kind of, well, it was super soft before, right? And now it's kind of, and now it's kind of more like what you'd expect out of a beer. It's still got a somewhat dry finish, but it's a lot more crisp and kind of like cuts to a, to a point. And that is just like a very, very light bitterness. Honestly, this is a solid salt. And I can cleanse the old palate real quick and dive into beer number two. All right, time to get into the Hop Rising Tropical Double IPA from Squatters. And this is 9% ABV and 72 IBUs based on what was on Untapped. Squatters didn't actually list an IBUs themselves. Let's get into it. On the nose, very fresh, very aromatic, more with more of a classic hop smell. It's kind of that piney, but also has a lot of juicy tropical notes to it, which calling it a Hop Rising Tropical Double IPA, you better expect it to be. The mouthfeel is very, very similar to Sierra Nevada's Hazy there. It's that velvety, luscious, smooth texture that normally I wouldn't expect out of a, an IPA. This one doesn't finish quite as dry and uh, as quite as crisp, um, but again, it's got that bitterness in this one. The bitterness is a lot more pronounced. There's a kind of sweetness in this one that's more fruity in nature than it is malty, uh, which is kind of interesting on this one. But overall, you can't really taste the, the alcohol flavor. So all of the, the flavors that you want out of it are there and are pretty consistent. Definitely not for those who shy away from hot bitterness though, because this one definitely is going to kick you in the teeth right at the end there. Uh, but overall, I'd say this is a pretty solid beer to compare against the hazy. It's not going to have the same notes, of course, but I think that doing a one-for-one -one on these ones, I could have chosen better, but I think that I could have chosen much, much worse at the same time. So pretty stoked on these ones. And I'll do a final comparison at the end of the show. The reason why I did the double second is because usually double IPAs, I kind of expect to have more of that harsh, resinous, piney kind of bitterness that you get out of the hops. So I didn't want to just fry my taste buds on that and then go to a hazy that might be more tropical and significantly less bitter. Um, so I think I made the right choice here and we'll see how they compare at the end. All right, for the latter part of the show here, finish off with budgeting. So something that I just cannot, cannot stress enough is that near mint quality on cards usually is not worth the extra cost for the card. Uh, and this comes from a very specific background, and I'll kind of mention that here at the end of the section. But... So this is just strictly about playability. It is a playable card game after all. You are not usually buying the cards as a collector. That's something that kind of happens, but most people are buying and getting cards. And if you're looking at budgeting specifically, you are buying the cards because you want to play with those cards. So that's where this kind of approach comes from. Used cards use the exact same rule set as the pack fresh brand new card. That's something that is always going to exist the same. My suggestion is that you buy from reliable sources that have a high standard for grade. And this is kind of what I meant by comes from a specific pack. Background. Card Kingdom has their own grading structure, and it is usually, from what I, from my own personal experience, a step above what is labeled in comparison to every other online seller. And primarily looking at TCG Player and all of the sellers on there, Card Kingdom is just a step above everything that I've experienced there. Their new mint is like they just barely pulled it out of a pack, put it in a sleeve, sent it to you. 
Everything below that is one step above for what every other seller is going to tell you. And no, I don't have a sponsorship or a affiliation with Card Kingdom, but they continue to earn my business by being so consistent and so reliable. For me, that's like my trusted source. When all of this COVID shit went down, they were the people that I was like, if I need to get cards and I can't go to my local shop, I know that I'm going to be able to get them from Card Kingdom. You know, eventually they had their own uh, way of dealing with COVID. And I think that it was very responsible and they communicated very well with their customer base about how they're going to do that. So I just think that if you're, especially if you're on the West Coast area, Card Kingdom is just going to be the best source to get your cards if you're going to buy online. Obviously, I want you to encourage to go in shops responsibly and get your cards locally, but that's not always an option for everybody. Um, so after that, there's this idea that isn't specific to magic, but it uh, but it rings very soundly within the confines of, of budgeting and magic. And that's the idea that more is less. It probably sounds crazy and pretty counterintuitive, uh, but it's often true. And so hear me out. A lot of the cards that you're interested in probably fall under two categories. The first category is that they're good cards, whether they're format staples, like Soul Ring is in Commander, or that they're flexible enough for multiple formats, like Force of Will and other free counter spells, or that they're just objectively strong cards, like Path to Exile, Fetchlands, etc. Good cards are the obvious ones, right? That's a category that you can pretty well break down, and you'll see it in the price of those cards, usually, right? Unless they've been reprinted a bunch, which we always want them to reprint them a bunch because they're good cards. So the second category is that they fit you as a player. This one's a little bit harder to analyze. They fit your playstyle, your deck, or you just have fun playing with these cards, right? And so there's a reason why you're interested in these two categories of cards. So it makes sense that you want to have not necessarily an abundance of them, but enough of them. So when looking at these categories of cards, uh, I have a rule, which is just my plus one rule. There's also just the, the general idea in Magic when you're buying cards is just the buy two rule, right? That idea. There's a reason why you're buying the cards in the first place, right? We've established that. Two categories of cards, they're good cards, or they fit you as a player. The likelihood of you wanting another copy of that card or those cards in the future is very, very high. So you have to consider the cost of the card as it is now versus its past. I'm not an MTG financier or anyone who's like super in-depth and knowledgeable about that side of things, but I do know how to read MTG Goldfish. And I generally keep track of the cards that I'm interested in. And when I see that it's gone down a significant amount or that it's gone down to what is pretty close to the bottom of its price margin for the past, you know, few months, few years, depending on the card, I know that that's a card that I'm, I'm looking at buying. So obviously this is not going to apply to every card, but you're the one who can be the judge of that. You're the one who gets to assess whether or not that card is something that you have to look at like that. Um, one of the best ways to do that is just to look at like, is this, and this is more of a commander specific card, because obviously if you're playing any other format that's not a singleton format, then buying multiples just makes sense because you're going to need multiples for it. But in commander, it's helpful to look at the cards as, is this a literal one-off that can only be used in this one deck? And the example I have is Crystalline Resonance from Commander 2020. So it is a card that has the text, whenever you cycle a card, it doesn't matter what the rest of that card does, because it requires you to be in a cycling deck and it only cares about cycling whereas there are other cards in the cycling matter categories that also care about discarding or drawing or whatever cycling is an additional effect that they care about but the cards that only care about cycling are only going to be used in a cycling deck so unless you have multiple cycling decks or you have enough to reach a threshold in other decks that have cycling coincidentally you're not going to want a card that only cares about cycling in most of your other deck pretty straightforward so now you're wondering well how is more less you're still buying more cards which means you're still spending more money well, you're going to be buying cards anyway, right? So if you factor in shipping costs, if you're buying online and all of the other fees therein, then doing a one-time buy is going to be cheap. And if you also factor in the potential for a chain in price for valuable cards, then you're going to be saving money because you're buying them at the low or at the relative low, at least for that time period, which means as they continue to go up, the next time you'd have to buy them would be more. And so 
So my roommate liked to talk about the idea of spaving, spending to save, and something that everyone has done, you know, buying something, uh, buying a superfluous amount of something just because it's on sale. It's just spaving, right? You're going to need those things later. Might as well get them now. And it's kind of the same idea for magic and for, for budgeting. Yes, it does cut into the budget, which you're allowed to have, because it's just going to take up more money for a card that you only need one of right now, but you're going to need some of later. And that kind of sucked. But for me personally, I would so much rather do that than to go in and spend, say, 10 bucks on anointed procession like two years ago. And now need another one because I'm a player who plays tokens and enchantments. And now all of a sudden I need two more and it's 20, 30, 40 bucks now. So things like that, where I know I'm going to find worth in that card, where I know that I'm going to use another copy of that card. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I want you to look at and say, getting an extra one now is going to be useful because it's not going to be the same price later, or because I'm going to cut costs on shipping or whatever else that is lumped in with it later. This is a very, very slippery slope. So be very cautious when it comes to that sort of budgeting and that, and that kind of saving. All right, let's look at more of the online play. A lot of this has been focused primarily on paper magic, but we're in a state of existence where paper magic is not necessarily your easiest or most accessible means of playing. So when it comes to magic gathering online, fortunately or perhaps unfortunately, it's going to be pretty similar to paper magic. The difference is you don't have to worry about any hidden costs such as shipping, and the prices are going to fluctuate based solely on meta and the deck or card popularity rather than worrying about like the limited stock and print of a card. There's a theoretically infinite stock of those cards, you're not worried about the stock of those cards, right? It's not like mythics are printed less online than any other card. It's not quite the same as in Paper Magic, where mythics are only one in eight packs, and there's 15 mythics that that can be, and that's only going to be one of 15 mythics. So the rarity scale just isn't quite the same online. Not that it's not there, but it's not going to influence the cost of card as much as it does in Paper Magic. So what that means is that, so instead of trying to spend more to save later, just buy what you need. Build the deck with what you need. Buy extras only if you're confident confident that the price is at its low or at its relative low and that you're going to continue to use that card elsewhere, right? The the amount of cards that you own exists in magic as is, right? If you have one Teferi, you're allowed to use that Teferi in multiple places. It's not like you can only put that into one deck that you have. So the, the costs behind Magic Online exist a little differently because of the way you're allowed to use those cards. So now let's jump over to Arena, which is a completely different mindset and it's going to be more difficult to just immediately break down. So the first advice that I have for people on Arena is always going to be the same. If you're looking to budget and you're looking to, to save on your resources, play to win, don't pay to win. You can buy all of the gems that you want so long as you know you can afford them, but that doesn't mean they're going to get you playing the deck and the cards that you want. So along that lines, play to win, I want you to play my favorite format, draft. I want you to draft, draft, and draft. Drafting is one of the best experiences you can have. I've already said that once this episode, I'll say it again. You get to, specifically for Magic Arena, you get to pick the cards you want to play with. You get to gain experience with those cards and with cards that you might normally not play with. You get to keep those cards when you're done and you get to net prizes to help you do it all over again. Theoretically, in Magic Arena, you can go infinite with your draft. You win all seven, you can queue up for another one. And the key part of this when it comes to budgeting is that you're getting play experience and you're getting to keep the cards. Once you've got four rows, those cards that would normally just go into your inventory are just recycled into your wildcard box. And then you get to open that wildcard box and you get the wildcards that you normally get. So it helps you just to gain cards and gain wildcards for you to use later. And we'll get into wild cards in a bit. So with drafting, you also get to learn what cards do and how they perform. It's a kind of like try before you buy kind of thing. But with that, be careful about picking cards just to fill your standard or your historic decks because you still have to play with those cards that are in your draft deck as your draft deck. You won't get to learn everything about what cards do because obviously there's some environments and interactions that you're never going to see because it's not in that set. But that's fine. You get to see kind of the general idea of how these cards work, how these cards play, get experience with them. Do you like this card? Do you not like this card? How did this card perform overall? You get to be the judge of all those things. 
So it kind of sounds hypocritical of me to say, hey, go buy the specific cards that you want. Don't buy packs. And then I'm telling you, hey, go do a draft instead of just buying the packs because it's basically the same thing for you, right? But since there's no way to just buy the cards, you might as well pay for the experience to use those cards as well. And it might allow you to play cards that you would have never played before. And now we've got to get into wild cards, right? So what about them? What about wild cards? How do you get wild cards? They're a rare thing that you get out of a pack, right? Unfortunately, they're just unreliable unless you own a lot of cards in the set to get wild cards or to get that return for your wild card box. So the kind of general idea is that you're using drafts to help fill your collection before you pay for packs, just as packs. It'll increase the amount that you get into your wildcard pool there, and then it'll also just increase the experience that you have with those cards, your familiarity with the cards, and your ability to play and counterplay around those cards. And also, to play draft because it's fun. The rest of that stuff can follow afterwards. So let's talk about wildcards specifically. Wildcards are kind of similar to buying packs in Paperman, right? You want to build a deck, not a collection. And what I mean by that is that think about what you're buying. Is it better to have one deck that is refined and has all of the cards that you want or need in that deck? Or is it better to have a bunch of decks that have some or most of the cards that you need? Obviously, you'd love to have multiple decks that you can play off. But let's change our frame of thinking and say that this is like your competitive deck. This one needs to perform well. This is the one that you're taking onto the ladder. You're playing against other people. You're playing standard, historic, whatever it happens to be. And you are actively trying to get better with this deck. You're learning the ins and outs of it, what works, what doesn't. So in order to have that, you need to have consistency, right? Which means you need to have four offs. This will pay off for you in the end. Consistency will always pay off for you rather than trying to randomly rely on whatever your deck happens to throw up. And like I said, you'll also get to learn the ins and outs of the decks. So alternatively to just building one deck, you could kind of pick a lane or even better than that, a color. You could pick control, aggro, mid-range, whatever happens to be. Find your preference and focus down on that archetype. Or like I said, pick a color. Black is a strong color that generally does pretty well has great removal, and it's also just one of the best supporting colors for any other color that you could use. And when it comes to kind of the state of the game right now, you could play Simic if that's something that works well for you. Simic basically is just going to always do well in the current environment. With that, and using wildcards, this kind of is functionally similar across all formats, not just arena, standard, historic, whatever. Buy staples, not singles. Works better for standard and brawl, but it can be used across the board. What you want to do is you want to opt for cards that fit into multiple strategies and decks. And the reason why I think it's best focused in arena is because of the way that you use your wild cards, right? Once you use it, that's it. And those cards can't really be used elsewhere, right? They literally can't be used elsewhere. They're locked in the client. So some things that would be great to focus on are like lands and removal. These are cards that are going to go in basically every deck that has that color. So you're not going to regret using a wild card to get them. And yes, I know buying lands feels, it feels bad, but there's a point where buying lands goes from feeling bad to feeling good. And when it does, it feels really, really good. And it's like having a tap land versus a shock land, right? The ability that you have to opt into not having that land be tapped to gaining the value out of it immediately versus having to rely on tap lands where yes, you have your colors, but not till next turn. It's such a massive difference that play experience is the only thing that will teach you that other people can kind of like tell you, but having spent the time and the investment on getting those lands, whether it be wild cards or just, you know, IRL, that experience is going to carry over across multiple decks and multiple experiences. And with the idea of staples, not singles, try to standard proof your deck. Try using tools from more recent sets wherever possible to provide more time of actually using them and avoid the feels bad when cards rotate. You don't necessarily have to spend wild cards on the most recent set. Instead, look at standard rotation. Spend wild cards on cards that are going to have the longest time in standard before they rotate out. 
This just allows you to have the most amount of time learning what the card does, seeing how flexible it is, and making that choice of I get to choose when I move this card out of my deck, not that card moves out because it's rotating out. And it's odd, and I'm sure it's frustrating, but it's hard to sometimes tell what cards will be the staples of a new set, especially really early on in that set's life cycle. So hold off using wild cards right away, just right when a new set comes out. Get some experience, because it's always going to be on draft at that point, just like a, a new beer. Get the experience there, see how it works, see how the meta kind of evolves around that set, and see if it's worth picking up. If it's just a good removal spell, you're probably going to be able to pick it up pretty easily. But if it's something that you're not really sure about, or that seems like it might be just OP and might be subject for a ban soon, hold off. Kind of fill out the meta. So the last topic I have here on Arena is about doing your chores. Chores are just like your daily quests, daily, weekly, whatever happens to be, uh, that you're working towards to gain gold and to, to continue to acquire resources as you play the game. So what I want you to do is to do your chores with unfamiliar decks and cards. So basically the exact opposite of what my last point was, but for a good reason. Rather than using the deck that you've refined and then you spent wild cards on, use different decks to help you learn about different options, different styles of decks. Find out what the options are for that deck. Find out what is going to be available in situations that you're in, that your opponents will be in when you're playing your favorite deck, your competitive deck, right? Learn how those decisions, those options are examined and learn how to counteract them, right? With this, it's also, to me anyways, a very critically important thing to switch up decks that you're using, especially for your chores, because I don't want myself or anyone else to get burned out because they're using the same deck over and over for everything. Back when Ixalan was in standard, I basically played two decks and that was it the entire time that Ixalan was in standard on arena. And it was just kind of like mind melting to play those decks because I knew every single time what was going on with those decks, which is good. You want consistency, but I used those decks for basically everything. And it was just kind of frustrating to just be like, I want to, to do other things, but I feel like I'm trapped into using these decks. Don't accept the mindset of being trapped in those decks. Use other things. You might even find something that's more fun, more useful, or stronger than what your current deck has because you're testing out all of these other different cards that you get from drafting or wherever else you, you know, acquire the cards. You could even find, and this is, this is going to be rare, but you could even find some silver bullets for sideboards. And a silver bullet is just like the card or, you know, a couple of cards that counteract a specific deck or strategy. Silver bullets are super difficult to find or super easy to find. It sounds like, yes, this is the obvious sideboard card, or holy crap, where did you find that card? It isn't obvious and it just like does exactly what you need. And yes, you spent a lot of time on your deck. So maybe you don't want to just completely swap out that deck. Try copying your deck and just swap out one color for another. Test what works, what doesn't. Get creative with it. Maybe you'll find out that blue-black control isn't exactly your thing, but you've spent the wild cards on it. You've put the time, the effort, the wild cards into it to really find that out. So maybe you want to do black, red, whatever happens to be. And this kind of like rounds back to the other point of just utilizing your drafted cards, right? It's kind of like keeping your pre-release deck after a pre-release event, just so you can play with your friends afterwards, play your deck against theirs. You've already built the 40 card deck when you draft, right? It means you only need 20 more cards from your collection just to make it into a standard deck. So what you can do is take from the pool that you've already built up, shore up the weaknesses that you found while playing it in the draft environment, and just see how it goes. You don't have to keep it for a long period of time, but you already have those cards. You already saw how they were playing. So why not try and make it better? See what happens. And of course, you can add extra power from other sets or that set that you just didn't draft and add synergies from those sets that you didn't get the opportunity to use in the draft. 20 cards can change a deck drastically. So there's no real downside of trying to mix it up. So the last kind of point of wild cards, Magic Online, Magic Arena, is that all of the money that you put in stays in. Unlike Paper Magic, you don't get to take what you've gotten in Arena and online with you. Yes, there is the thing online where if you get every card in a set, you can get those cards taken out of your collection and sent to you personally. 
but that's a pain in the ass to do and it's going to cost you a bit. Just take it from experience on that one. So with that, be frugal about how you spend your money on Arena. Get the most out of the experience and that may not necessarily be the most that you can get out of the cards or that deck. I guess what I'm saying is just try and be conscientious about what you're putting into Arena and online because normally if you're buying something, that's something that you physically have and you can resell or whatever. That's not the case for online environments. All right, let's do a final review of these beers. So the Hop Rising Tropical Double IPA still has a nice kind of tropical fruity bouquet on the nose. It's still got that hop-specific kind of piney smell to it. It's not really for those that are not fans of hops. Just putting that one straight out there. But how does it compare to the Hazy Little Thing? So straight away, the first notes on the Hazy Little Thing is just muted, right? All of the flavors that I had experienced before are more or less in the Tropical Double, but they're just so much more pronounced in that beer that Hazy Little Thing is just weak in comparison. The maltiness kind of comes out as more flat, not quite as sweet. The the actual hop characteristics are there. Very subtle light bitterness. The fruitiness is there, but again, it's just, it's very underwhelming. Perhaps I didn't choose such a good comparison as I thought. Going back to the Tropical Double after the Hazy, you get a lot brighter notes out of it. The fruity sweetness that you get out of it is much more pronounced. The malt body on it is, again, subdued, which is kind of interesting. And then the bitterness that was kind of at the end that was a bit more sharp is just not, it's not as pronounced as it was at the beginning when I was tasting that beer for the first time. So overall, these beers are very good. I think that the Hazy Little Thing is going to be just way more approachable for basically everyone. But if you are a hop kind of person, the Hop Rising Tropical Double IPA is definitely a solid include to your list. Well, as we have in the past, and as I will continue to do so going forward, got to name beer of the show. And for me personally, I got to give it to the Double. I think that it just does more with what it's working with. The flavors are just way more pronounced, even though it does have a lot of that bitterness that I generally am not a fan of. It really gives a stark comparison to the sweetness that it has, which at the beginning was very subtle, but the longer I've been drinking it, the more those flavors kind of come out. Uh, Not really so much the malt flavors as it is more of like a fruity sweetness, which come from those hop additions, and the aroma is just absolutely killer. So giving it to the Hop Rising on this one. Squatters, shout out there. I've been enjoying a lot of their beers, and it doesn't really surprise me in this one. Sierra Nevada is always, always a brand that if I see one of their stuff, I know it's going to be high quality. So it's not like the Hazy Little Thing is a bad beer. It just, it loses this comparison one-to-one. Well, I should start wrapping this episode up. So let me give some final words about budgeting in Magic, and especially during our current climate. Number one, stay focused. That's going to help you leaps and bounds above everything else. Know what slots you're looking to fill for a specific deck or know what cards you're looking for and stay focused on those cards because as soon as you start to look at other cards, that's when you start to spend extra money on stuff that you don't actually need. Next one is just start low and work your way up. The best example, of course, is just lands, right? Basics help to fill a slot, but shock lands help to make that slot look so much better and work so much better. Basics will work. Shock lands will work better. Next one, stay flexible. You may not find your desired card, that specific card at a good price. So be ready to find an alternative and be willing to use that alternative if it's significantly more budget friendly than what the original card you were looking for is. Next, be creative. This one I think is just as important as staying focused because it kind of encompasses all of these. Find out how to use less expensive spells more effectively. Find cards that fill multiple roles. Find modal cards or kind of like lean into the idea of certain styles of like removal or hand attack, things like that, that can take away the advantage and opportunity from your opponents before they ever actually get it. And the last one here is just cut your budget early. So this one is going to, it's going to feel, feel bad, but I promise you it'll, it'll help you so much in the future. Start your budget at 10, 20, even 50% lower than what you're actually willing to pay and then stick to it. 
cut that as your needs and wants. If you're spending 10, 20, 50% less than what your original budget was, then that extra amount can be used to amp it up, right? Build the deck with 50 bucks, then use the extra $50 to just beef that thing up and make it hit like a truck. You'd be surprised at what you're actually able to accomplish when you limit yourself like that. Allow your creativity, but stay focused within within your parents, right? So that's all I got on this one. Hopefully this was engaging and informative. I think that this is a topic that nobody really has covered well, and I don't necessarily know that I did here, but you'll be the judge of that. This is a topic that I don't think is often covered well. People always want to spout out, hey, look at my budget bill for this. I built this deck for 25 bucks, but how did you make the decisions on that deck, right? Did you just take random cards together and throw them together? No, obviously not. You're not going to broadcast that deck if it doesn't function well, which means that you had to make cognitive decisions for why you have this. Deck. I'm just trying to help you guys with my pattern. See if you follow the path that I take without working with Revise it to fit your own strategy. Budgeting, budgeting can be difficult, but you don't have to make it difficult. And that's kind of what I'm trying to show with this episode. So let me know what you guys think. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, hopefully YouTube soon at UD Podcast or at Untap Upkeep Drink. Thanks for listening. And as always, have fun and budget smarter, not harder.